Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightning. I'm here with Michael Zarling, and uh, this is episode 23, or as I like to call it, the Michael Jordan episode of the Thirsty Podcast. Uh, blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Well, let me stop you right there. So you said 23. Isn't that LeBron James number two? I, I don't know. I stopped following basketball when I got out of grade school pretty much. Well, I, I did too. The reason I bring it up is I heard this the other day of, you know, LeBron James team, you know, they were getting killed by the Phoenix Suns hmm. and he walked off the basketball court and someone said, well, Michael Jordan wouldn't do that. And then someone else replied, well, Michael Jordan would never have been down by 30 points either. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, well, today we are going to look at uh, the last two chapters of James and the first three chapters of First Peter. And uh, I was just telling Pastor Zarling as we were getting the equipment set up here that um, I'm kind of familiar with these, first of all, because when I was in the parish, uh, I used the one-year historic pericope, and James actually comes up a lot in the uh, historic pericope. Um, I didn't always preach on it, but uh, it it certainly comes up enough times that you, you get a familiarity with it when you read it uh, so many weeks, year after year, in the parish. And uh, then First Peter is also one of the books of the Bible that uh, my high school that I teach at, Shoreland Lutheran High School, uh, is included in the course that I teach for Religion 3. It's called The Christian Church, and uh, one of the books of the Bible is First Peter that we go through in that course. Um, it's maybe, I'm going to say, my favorite book in the New Testament. Um, at least when I'm reading it, it is. And uh, so that's that's where we'll kick things off. Let's start with James chapter 4. And uh, what what notes do you have on James 4? Well, I want to go with verse 4. So I want to see if you have anything before those verses. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, we can, we can skip right to that. All right. So there he says, So whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James is not suggesting that we as Christians should cut ourselves off from the world. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples to be lights of the world. They are to carry the gospel into the world that we are to be living in the world, but not of the world. We're not friends with the world, meaning both what James and Jesus are getting at is that we are not to share the sinful values and lifestyles of the wicked people in the world. So, Pastor Lightning, have you read and watched uh, The Lord of the Rings? I have done a little bit of reading. I think I've seen all three movies and, and I think I've seen The Hobbit. Okay. Well, I just read this the other day that the Tolkien Society has gone full woke uh, and they have uh, and they bowed to Sauron in their, uh, in their summer seri series. So here's a couple of the titles of their presentations at, at this. They Pardoning Saruman, the queer in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Projecting Indian myths, culture, and history onto Tolkien's world. And, and that's because there aren't any Indian people. It's a European uh, culture-based. How uh, about this one? The Invisible Other, Tolkien's Dwarf Women and the fem Feminine Lack, because there's not a lot of women in Tolkien's mm, books. Sure. Uh, 
basically there's there's a lot more. I didn't I can read all of them, but the idea is that Tolkien has this great story that has a lot of Christian elements in it. And yet, because the people are in the world, they're bringing the world and imposing it on uh, his allegory in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, that's a Christian allegory. It's, it's not surprising at all. Uh, when they, they do that with God's word, uh, you can think of the um, centurion with his servant that Jesus wanted. He wanted Jesus to heal his servant, and people find ways to wedge it in there that uh, the centurion had some kind of a gay relationship with his servant, um, and it, which yeah, that's that's blasphemous and uh, not at all credible. Um, and uh, and yet, if they do that with God's word, then it's not surprising that they would do that also with uh, with, with fiction that allegorizes or, or is, uses figures from God's word. Uh, I wonder how you uh, would present these verses, like in verse 8, when it says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Um, I'm, you said before we started that you were going to throw some uh, hard questions at me, so I, I'm going to try to preempt them and throw a hard one at you. Um, how, how is that not synergism? Or when I say synergism, uh, you know, it, it's uh, working together with God for your salvation. And uh, verse eight, it, it kind of, that, that might be fodder that somebody could use to say, well, don't you have to come near to God before he will come near to you? Yeah. So James is not talking about synergism here. He's not talking about uh, that somehow sinners must take the first step toward God. Rather, uh, these words of the Holy Spirit inspiring James is the Holy Spirit has that gospel invitation where God is always present and eager to forgive us. You know, he is near us, and so that's our invitation to come near to him. Yeah, it, it maybe another way to put it is, um, this is in chapter four of James's letter. He didn't start chapter one by saying, uh, hey, you unbelievers, you don't know anything about Christ, but come near to God and then he'll come near to you. No, it's, it's four chapters in after he's been uh, explaining God's and speaking God's word to them that then he says, uh, by the way, whenever you come near to God, he's right there and comes near to you too. And then the following verse, uh, verse nine, lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be changed into mourning and your joy into gloom. It's not like James is a sourpuss and he says you can't ever be happy and you have to start lamenting and weeping, but he's talking there about uh, a call to repentance, uh, including your humbling yourself before the Lord, expressing genuine sorrow over impure thoughts and sinful actions. And so he's really applying verses 7 through 10 about humbling yourself before the Lord. And then he will lift you up. It's submitting yourself to God. Then you're able to flee the devil. Then he will purify your heart so you're not filled with lust. And all because you are repenting, now you're able to uh, fight against the sins of fighting and quarreling. Again, all because you are humbling yourselves under God's will. Uh, verses 13 and following, 
raise some good points that that we should think about. Uh, I think it's important to find a balance uh, between what James says and and kind of taking it in a pedantic or uh, sort of legalistic way. But he does raise a good point. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city, spend a year there, do business and make profit. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, you, you, could, you could die in an instant. Your life is a, a mist and a vapor. And he says in verse 15, instead, it is better if you say, uh, if it is the Lord's will, we will go to this or that city or carry on this or that business. Um, did you have any comments on, on those verses? Well, I don't know if you've uh, heard it this way. I'm older than you are. Because uh, I'm the old and crotchety pastor. Old. Let's emphasize. You're very old. <laughs> very old. Uh, that uh, I, this would be more my parents and grandparents. But I've read some pastors who have talked about how Christians and pastors used to pray. You know, notice, I'll, I'll ask you, Jeremy, when you hear prayers of intercession on a Sunday morning, like you hear here at Water of Life, what are the prayers like? What are we praying for? Uh, you mean like special requests? Yeah. So uh, that uh, surgeries for our members would go well, that there would be uh, comfort given to people who have lost loved ones, uh, blessings on graduates or confirmands, yeah. things like that. We're, we're asking for healing. Mm. What uh, the pastors have said in the past, people didn't pray so much for healing. They prayed that... If the, if the suffering continues, then that they would be able to handle the suffering. You know, they want, they want healing, but that's not the way we pray today. We pray, Lord, uh, heal us, and then we also pray, uh, oh, we don't add even the prayer, well, but if you're not healing me, please give me the patience and the endurance and uh, the way to endure it. And so I have started, when I remember, I have started to add uh, Lord, we pray for healing for so-and-so if it is your will. Hmm. And that's what I, I, I take out of this as well. And in fact, I got a, a text last night from someone. I was asking them if they were going to be in church as a new member so I could take his picture. And he said, he'll be in church in two weeks. And, uh, but he added, if the Lord wills. You know, I thought that was a great way of doing it. We don't know what the Lord's will, and so it's good for us to add that if the if it's the Lord's will, if it's in the Lord's timing. Uh, what points did you want to make about uh, James chapter five? A lot. <laughs> well, while you're getting ready for that, I, I did just want to add that. Um, what I was saying before about being legalistic or pedantic, it's kind of based on a conversation I heard one time uh, when I was in Germany, and uh, there were members of the church that were talking about some plans uh, that they had for the church that summer. I, I don't know if it was like a children's VBS type of a program or, or a, a Bible study that they wanted to do. Um, or maybe it was somebody saying a vacation they wanted to take. It, it was kind of hard when you don't know the language fluently to grasp all of that. But uh, what I did catch was that after they got done explaining it, the guy who played the organ uh, spoke up and said, well, really, according to James, what you should say is, 
uh, if it is the Lord's will, you're going to go on vacation, or if it's the Lord's will, you're going to... Um, and and I the thing is, I don't think that the way they were talking was the arrogant boasting that James means here. And so it, it's not as though um, every single time you say, you know, uh, tomorrow my family plans to go to somebody's graduation party. Uh, we don't have to say every time that we talk about it, um, well, if it is the Lord's will, we'll go to the graduation party. And then the next time we talk about, you know, Sunday morning, if it is the Lord's will, uh, we're going to work in the garden after church or something like that. Um, you, you can have that attitude of heart, even if you don't specifically say the phrase. So James begins chapter five with the heading in our EHV Bible of woe to the rich, uh, and I wonder, is there a special application of these verses to our modern day America? Because we are extremely wealthy in our nation. Even the poorest among us is wealthy compared to people in most nations in our, in our world. And so our wealth can easily become our God. Now, wealth is not wrong, but our access to wealth can lead us to set our hearts on acquiring more and more wealth. It can lead us to exploit others. And uh, economics is a difficult subject, uh, but we should always uh, look at our buying habits. You know, where are we buying from? What what country are we buying from? Can Are we exploiting the poor in these countries? Can I help out a, a local business? So I went out... I had uh, Pakistani for lunch today. Never had that before. You know, nice local restaurant as opposed to, uh, you know, one of the chains that we have here in town because Racine has lots of restaurants. Uh, The point James is making here is a wealthy person is like a foolish old man who works and works, hoarding up wealth only to die and have it go go to others. So the end is coming soon. Why hoard wealth now? All of our wealth is only going to end up being destroyed. And so better just to use our wealth in applying it to our our lives today. Use our wealth to serve God and the spread of his kingdom. The one thing that uh, we were discussing, Pastor Zarling and I, before we started is how, um, what a stark contrast there is between uh, the last two chapters of James and then the first three chapters of first Peter that will, that we're about to get to, uh, that there, there sure is a lot of, uh, condemnation and law and, and even the third use of the law to just guidance that James offers, uh, in these last two chapters of his epistle. Um, and, and th- those are hard things to hear, but it's good, good for us to hear them no matter how God's law is administered to us. Um, I guess I just had on chapter five, uh, a couple more comments. One would be that I like how James uses Old Testament characters and he points you to the Bible history that you would learn, you'd have learned as a Jewish child. And ho- hopefully we still are teaching our children this Bible history. Uh, he says to look to the example of Job uh, as an example of suffering with patient endurance and uh, he also says to look to Elijah, the prophet, uh, who was a man just like us in verse 17, and uh, he prayed for great things, and then God granted him those great things that he prayed for. 
Um, and then the last thing I'll say about James 5 is uh, just once again, that you can tell he was the Lord's brother, uh, at least a small hint of it in verse 12, where this sounds like something that maybe both of the boys growing up in the home of Mary and Joseph would have heard uh, or been taught that you shouldn't go around making oaths and trying to put exclamation points on your statements by swearing things. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, And... uh, God's word through the Holy Spirit teaches us both things. Right. And when I teach about oaths and uh, the second commandment in my catechism class, uh, there are godly oaths that we should make. We don't have to do the, you know, pinky swear, cross my heart, hope to die, uh, any of that kind of thing. But there are godly oaths to take. And we talk about godly oaths like, uh, being a you know being a parent, or being a godparent, or in the congregation when a an infant is baptized, the godly oath when you're making your confirmation vows, or when you're being married. So there are times to make oaths, but most of the time, just let your yes be yes and your no no. And the last thing that I had on prayer is, uh, Pastor Lightning, what do you think of Garth, Garth Brooks' song "Thank God for Unanswered Prayers"? Um, I'm not a fan of country music, so uh, first of all, is that all, I why can't... you keep wearing your Led Zeppelin shirts? That's right. That's right. Uh, I I can't speak with much authority on uh, the lyrics of the song, but um, I, I would say just at face value, those words all by themselves, unanswered prayers, are uh, not a biblical teaching that, first of all, God answers all prayers. And I think I've made the point before on this podcast that um, I'm having a hard time finding Bible passages where God says no to a a prayer asked with faith in Jesus' name. Um, God either says yes, or he says wait, or he says I'll give you something even better. Right. And that's the key. I understand, I think, what Garth Brooks is trying to say in that song, because he's singing about uh, falling in love with this young lady, I think, in high school, and he prayed to marry her, and then it ended up, he married someone else, and it ended up much better. So he thanked God for an unanswered prayer, but you're right, that's not Christian, it's not biblical. God answered his prayer, but in a different way, in a better way, that we teach God answers prayers in Yes, no, and the one that's the hardest, harder than no, is wait. And that goes to the earlier verses on being patient. So that's what I have on James. Uh, First Peter is a letter written by uh, the spokesman. By Peter. By the spokesman, yeah, by a guy named Peter, uh, spokesman of the apostles, uh, somebody who had a very close relationship with Jesus, Uh, was an eyewitness to uh, things like the transfiguration, uh, the uh, raising of Jairus' daughter, uh, Jesus' suffering in the garden uh, when he sweated drops of blood. Um, And uh, Peter was a very temperamental kind of a guy. He he, he could let his emotions get get carried away, um, as we all can. Uh, But uh, Peter's were especially pronounced with uh, some of the trouble that he got himself into. Um, 
he he had great moments of faith. He had great moments of uh, messing up, and uh, that really made him a great preacher that could relate to the people he was writing to. And that's the very first thing that we meet with in uh, chapter one. He he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then he lists all of the uh, places that would receive his letter, the saints and believers in uh, Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, of course, that would be Asia Minor. Don't be thinking of uh, East Asia. Um, but uh, these are the people that Peter is writing to, and he calls them the elect. He calls them temporary residents in the world, and all of those things have a lot of comfort uh, for us still today. Yeah, and when I was studying on this, I, th- I found it interesting that one of the notes was that, uh, like you said, Peter is addressing the Christians and the congregations in Asia Minor in locations where St. Paul established churches on his first missionary journey. And some suggest that Peter wrote from Rome while Paul was on his mission trip to Spain, caring for Paul's congregation when he was gone. And I talk a lot about shared ministries of being able to reach out to other congregations. And I think that's what, uh, that's a good example here in the first two verses as uh, if that's accurate, if Paul is gone and Peter is kind of watching over them, kind of like, I'll ask you to do, I haven't asked you yet, but now you're, I'm put on the spot, like, I'll ask you to take care of water of life for a week while I'm on vacation. You're, you're talking about other pastors or me? I'll, I'll ask you first if you're around, <laughs> but, uh, but I think that's kind of a way of looking at it here. Uh, verse two, uh, he talks about those who have been elect. God chose us as Christians before he created us, before the foundations of the world, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And listen to the, uh, the way he lays out the doctrine of the Trinity, the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. So Pastor Lightning and on Trinity Sunday, I shared this meme on Facebook that said, Wright's non-heretical Trinity Sunday sermon feels like you've beaten the Kobayashi Maru. Do you even know what that is? No. Okay. The Kobayashi Maru? Yeah. No, I do not know what that is. Okay, well, it's like the unbeatable... the unbeatable obstacle for in Star Trek with Spock and and James T. Kirk and so forth, but ah. it's it's geeky Star Trek stuff. But the key is, it's so easy to teach wrongly about the Trinity. You know, it, like mm. it's the people have explained the Trinity like it's different things of water, of vapor, and a, and a solid as ice, and a liquid, or an apple core, and you got the seed and so forth. But that's all wrong. The key is, I think the best way to teach the doctrine of the Trinity is just to say, this is what the work of each person the Holy Spirit is, and go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got the Trinity in the opening verses. You've got the uh, article of election, predestination, um, the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, then Peter launches into uh, a blessing 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, these verses, by the way, are well worth memorizing uh, if, you, if you don't already know them by heart. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, uh, it talks about an inheritance that you have in heaven that uh, is undying, undefiled, and unfading. Um, an inheritance that's a, a prize or a, a sum of money that uh, you cannot earn by by working at it. Uh, you get an inheritance simply because you belong to the family. So maybe playing off of what you just said about the Trinity, God is a family inside of himself, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, that's also what he gives to us as his representatives here on earth, uh, our families. And um, you, are, you are part of that family. And one of the things of being in a family is an inheritance. And a part of that being... Uh, being a part of that family is verse, verse five, you, you're protected. You're protected by God's power for what? For salvation that's going to come at the end of time. In if, if verse three, again, you have the um, new birth. So what? how else are you a part of a family? You're born into it. And again, you can't choose that. You don't make a decision to be born into a family uh, in the same way we don't make a decision to to become God's children. Uh, that is a birth that is given to us through the Holy Spirit from above. In verse 6 and 7, he says, Because of this, you rejoice very much, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various kinds of tri- trials so that the proven character of your faith, which is more valuable than gold, which passes away even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, That phrase, proven character, uh, Peter is alluding to gold being refined by fire so that its character is ever pure gold. Uh, He uses the same words to describe a Christian being refined by various kinds of troubles so that the character of his or her faith is an ever pure faith. And there I think of one of my favorite shows to watch, because I can't do this, is Forged in Fire. And have you ever seen that show of four contestants? They're given a lump of metal. I have not seen this show, but I want to tell you that I have a former uh, high school roommate who uh, actually won that. He, he won, he won, he was a contestant on it, and I think he ended up winning on the episode for whatever his, oh. uh, yeah. Yeah, and so it's it's hard work because you have two or three hours to take some metal and then work in a uh, very hot, probably 500 to 700 degree forge, and you're melting, uh, not melting, but you're, you're molding that hot metal to forge a, uh, well, a knife, and then later on in the championship round, a sword. But... Peter describes this, and it's described this way elsewhere in the epistles and especially among the prophets, that you and I as Christians, that when we go through suffering, as Peter is writing to Christians who are being persecuted, when they're going through and we are going through this suffering, understand it's we're being forged. We're in a hot fire. We're going to be pounded on afterwards. And it's not fun to be pounded on, and it's not fun to be heated up and molded. And yet what Peter's saying is we are better for it because now we're worth something like a knife or a sword instead of a lump of metal. This was a verse that um, I knew a man once named Joe, 
And uh, it wasn't me. It was actually another pastor who shared this verse with him. Uh, he was not really belong. He didn't really belong to any church, but uh, he was married, and uh, his wife left him with a daughter, and uh, actually left him for another woman. Um, and he was really going through some rough times in life, and the pastor who shared this devotion with him made that point that your rough times that you're going through right now uh, are really like fire that is uh, forging you into, a, a, your, it's forging your faith into a stronger faith. And, and that really meant a lot to him. It stuck with him. Um, as, we, as we move on through um, chapter one, there is an awful lot that we could talk about. Uh, we're going to have to not really do it justice, but sort of skim uh, more than anything. Uh, verses 10 through uh, 12 uh, talk about how we have an advantage over the people in the Old Testament. A lot of times you think of uh, the crossing of the Red Sea and the miracle of Elijah calling down fire with the prophets of Baal that burned, burned up the altar that was soaked with water. Um, you name the miracle, the 10 plagues in Egypt, uh, and you think, oh, if only we could have seen those things. And Peter's saying in verses 10 through 12, no, you have the advantage over those Old Testament believers because you get to see the fulfillment. Uh, you get the eyewitness reports of uh the people who walked and talked with Jesus, the Messiah, here on this earth. And he says uh, this marvelous little line at the end of verse 12, even the angels long to look carefully into these things. Uh, the angels are interested. In, in, I don't know if we have a huge following on this podcast, uh, but no matter how big or small our following is, uh this this tells us here that angels are listening to our podcast, even if nobody else is, because <laughs> because they want to hear more and more about this marvelous miracle that was fulfilled when Christ took on human flesh. Yeah, and I was going to make the same kind of thing. The angels like listening to powerful sermons and uh listen to great singing. They, they enjoy seeing children being confirmed and adults or children being baptized, adults being confirmed. Oftentimes we think of angels just being there to protect us, but they're there uh, enjoying us as well. And then verse 13, Peter says, therefore, after preparing your minds for action, and then he goes on to talk about it, that verb uh, preparing for action alludes to the necessary practice of the time that the people usually wore long garments, which they tied up around their waists if they're about to begin some physical activity. And so Peter urges Christians to exercise self-control as the tying up that would prepare their minds for the activity of holy living. And I thought of when I read that verse of, you know, I do a lot of biking, and I'll even bike to church on Sunday morning in my church clothes. Uh, but it, it looks funny when I'm on my bike and you see me get off because I have my right pant leg stuffed into my sock. And the reason for that is I don't want that pant leg to brush up against the chain and get bicycle grease on it. But I'm preparing for action. And we all as Christians need to be prepared for the work of the Lord. 
For example, here at Water of Life, there's a lot of work going to be done on Saturday at our Caledonia campus. We're doing door canvassing at our Racine campus. We're putting uh, rubber mulch in our playground. We've got a member that needs some help in his backyard. Uh, We have a Sunday school workshop going on at another church in town. We're rolling up our sleeves and we're getting to work. Uh, The end of chapter one has an awful lot of just beautiful phrasing that Peter uses uh, to talk about how it is that we are saved. Um, Verse 18 says, you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Uh, And that's a good reminder that uh, when you think about your culture and heritage, I, I know for me, um, you know, my last name is Finnish, and so I tend to think that things from Finland are pretty cool. Uh, I teach German because a, a lot of my heritage is, is from German uh, background, and, and you could do this with any kind of culture, uh, Hispanic, African American, uh, Italian, uh, Chinese, Japanese, uh, you name it. Uh, but finally, what Peter says here is that your, your culture can't teach you how to live forever. There's no society on earth that has passed down to their children and grandchildren. Uh, here is how you solve the problem of death. So no matter what culture you have or come from, it really is an empty way of life handed down from your forefathers. Um, and, uh, and then we get that uh, beautiful phrasing that Martin Luther ended up taking and adopting for the small catechism. He said uh, that we're redeemed not with gold or silver, uh, but with the precious blood of Christ. And uh, he didn't originate that. Uh, Peter gave us that by inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. Yeah, and exactly. The word redeem here means to pay a price in order to free someone from captivity. Here the price was paid not with silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ, uh, that we were redeemed from our empty way of life, living only for ourselves and our evil desires, but now we were bought by the unblemished Passover lamb of God. And the last thing I had, Pastor Lightning, is the phrase, the word of the Lord endures forever. So uh, that's part, that's one of the... uh, themes of the Lutheran, uh, the Lutheran Reformation of VDMA, mm-hmm. uh, Verbum Domini Manet in Aeternum, which means the word of the Lord endures forever. And that's a symbol that has a Greek cross, which just looks like a, a plus sign. And then the VDMA in each quadrant of that cross. And it first appeared in the court of Frederick the Wise in 1522. And Frederick had that symbol sewn on the right sleeve of his court officials and was supposed to be worn by both prince and servant alike. And back when we were creating paintings for the front of our sanctuary, I really was hoping for uh, some Lutheran paintings up in the front during the season of end times that one painting would have somewhere on it Luther's seal with the five solas of the Reformation and the other one, VDMA, because I'd like to explain what all that means to our people. Um, in, in chapter one, uh, again, we could, there, there are thousands of sermons within just 
one or two verses uh, that you, and you just pick any one or two verses. Um, I guess I'll just wrap up chapter one with the comment on uh, verse 20 that it talks again about election or predestination. Peter writes uh, that he, Christ, was chosen before the foundation of the world. And th- that's the right way to think about election. Um, first of all, it doesn't say anything about those who are non-elect. In fact, it's, I shouldn't even be bringing them up because Peter doesn't, doesn't bring up the non-elect. Um, second of all, uh, there's no reason for God electing or choosing or predestining the people who are chosen. Uh, and we, we, there are lots of controversies that have come up where people say, well, it's because you're a believer that God elected you or, you know, something in you is because God decided to choose you. And, uh, Peter here says, no, it's, it's because of Christ. You were chosen in him, uh, before the foundation of the world. And uh, that also then helps to you to understand correctly verse 22, when Peter says, you have purified your soul, um, that's, that's a correct way of speaking. You can talk about you purifying yourself. Uh, obviously, uh, you never would have done that without the Holy Spirit converting and without Jesus' blood uh, justifying you. Uh, but uh, as long as you have election in the right place, in the right place and understand that correctly, um, then you can even say things like Peter does, you have purified your soul. And then the very first word of chapter two is therefore. And when you hear therefore, you have to go back to the preceding verses. Uh, Here he is referring to the fact that we have been born again through the word of God, which cannot fail. And because we're born again into a new life, God wants us to put away our sins and that part of our old life. And he really is asking the question, how should we become like newborn babies? Uh, Babies show their desire and their need for milk, and they are appreciative of it. And they have a single-minded desire for that milk, and that's the way you and I should be. And, And I think you do if you're listening to this podcast, that you have a desire for the milk of God, God's Word. Uh. Chapter 2 also introduces us to a very important article of doctrine in the Christian faith, and that is the priesthood of all believers. Uh, In verse 5, Peter calls the readers of his letter a holy priesthood. And uh, that means that it's not just the clergy who are uh, priests in God's sight, it is also uh, every believer. And the whole point of being a a priest and and uh, is that you make sacrifices it's that you pray but then the other thing that priests did in the old testament is they were teachers and and so they were they were to be teachers of god's people and that means that uh, not every believer should stand up in front of the congregation and start teaching uh, only those who are rightly called should do that. But uh, there is a, a time and a place for every believer to do teaching. And yes, even to do the forgiving of sins, uh, that, that is part of the keys that Christ has given to the whole church. And then talking about the church and the, uh, the church be- being built on Jesus Christ, the chosen and precious cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, and then you and I are living stones. So I've been having this discussion lately about on the importance of church buildings. 
You know, I had as my first church a storefront church with folding chairs and a borrowed and used baptismal font. And well, the baptismal font was a crystal bowl on a borrowed altar and a pulpit. We used a computer for music, and it was next to a pawn shop in Kentucky. But I've been in some beautiful, gorgeous Romanesque and Gothic churches. Uh, And, you know, we want to put the best into our church buildings, but we need to remember that the greater building is always Jesus Christ. And And, that and his his believers built built on him. Yeah, built on him. And exactly. So I wanted to share this longer quote. Uh, this is a few weeks ago that Trinity Bible Church in Ontario had refused to close this last year with all the coronavirus restrictions, and they were fined $40 million. Uh, and this was the senior pastor's response. He wrote, uh, in part, they took our building because they think that will stop us from worshiping. For 20 years, our church has worshiped together each Lord's Day, and we've only met in our own building for 11 months. So the best part of our history, we have not owned a building. We managed just fine to gather together without our own building, and now we don't have our own building again. The early church met in the catacombs in Rome. The Coventers met in fields. John Bunyan led his services in forests. Churches find ways to worship together as surely as water flows downhill. And then here's the kill shot. He writes about the government. They stole our building, at least temporarily. We'll keep our worship and we'll keep our fellowship. Many churches around these parts think they still own their buildings, but they already voluntarily handed their buildings and their people and their worship over to Caesar months ago. We just forced Caesar to come and take the building, but we've kept the church. And then the best sentence, Caesar can have the brick and mortar. We've kept the church for Jesus, uh, that that uh, stands in, in somewhat of a contrast to uh, <laughs> what the second half of First uh, Peter two talks about, um, which gets into a, a lot of uh, submitting to every human authority, um, and and when even when they are heavy-handed and uh, unreasonable in their demands of you. Uh, that it's still a God-pleasing thing, uh, which I, I think you could say that that church you just described w- was being submissive, uh, weren't they? They they said if you need if you say that's right to take our building, then we'll let you take our building. Um, in a way that you could say that is a a type of a submission. Um, at, I just wanted to say one more time, I was getting a little flustered before when I was talking about the priesthood of all believers, because I wasn't seeing the verse that comes up a little bit later in chapter two, uh, where he says it again, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people who are God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I say that simply because uh, there are even Lutherans, and I would say uh, very... Uh, fine, upstanding, uh, uh, conservative-minded Lutherans who uh, go maybe a little bit too far and would say that uh, the common people in the pew shouldn't do the forgiving of sins. It should be the uh, the pastors or the clergy that do the forgiving of sins. Well, here Peter in verse 9 says uh, that all believers are to proclaim the praises of 
of God. And what is a better way to state or say out loud what God's praises are than to say that your sins are forgiven? Um, and so Peter really deals a, a kill shot of his own, you could say, uh, if I can borrow a phrase from you. There you go. That uh, even, even the believers in the pew are allowed to use the keys of forgiving or binding sins to people uh, within their proper calling. Um, uh, other than that, I think I've already mentioned that uh, the last half of chapter 2 talks in pretty strong terms about how uh, there are very few times when submitting to your authority figures are going to be a displeasing thing. Uh, this is a God-pleasing thing uh, to, to submit or honor. Uh, even if you're a slave at, with, uh, in a master relationship, or today we might say an employer with a boss relationship, um, it's, it's almost always a God-pleasing thing to say, I will subject my will to that of an authority figure. And I think it is important for us to understand, because I've heard a lot of people use Romans 13 of submitting to the governing authorities. Peter's words are the same, submit to every human authority. Uh, And you have to, I think what they, well-meaning and well-intentioned Christians meant by submitting to the governing authorities when there were mandates and so forth coming down from local, federal, and state governments, they meant obey. Just, you have to obey. But obey and submit are two totally different words. Submit means to acknowledge and be respectful to those whom God has placed over you. But that doesn't mean you have to do everything that they tell you to do. Mm. Okay? That's two different things because we do also have a human reason to look at... uh, there are going to be times that the government's going to tell you certain things to do uh, or your your employer, or we're going to look at, Peter uses the same word submit in the next chapter with wives submitting to their husbands, and that's not obedience. It's uh, putting yourself under that person. And in America, we the people, uh, we trust that the governing authorities are going to do what's best for us. But it does leave room, and this is for a total discussion, and in fact, I have, I've been asked to write a paper on this, on resistance, you know, Christian resistance to governing authorities when they overstep their bounds. So uh, would you say, what is the difference between physically, like uh, uh, submitting in a physical way and submitting in a political way? Is there, is there a distinction between your, your physical well-being and political well-being? I'm sure there is, but I would need more time to really I, think yeah. about it. Uh, the, the the chapter ends actually with one of the most beautiful uh, Good Shepherd verses of the Bible that uh, Jesus did the ultimate submitting to a, an unjust authority uh, when he did not threaten or insult those who threat, who insulted and put him to death. And it, it, he carried our sins in his body on the tree uh, so that we'd be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. And uh, then it ends by talking about the shepherd and overseer of our souls, that is Christ. Right. And when he says that we are now dead to sin, so Pastor Lightning and I have each done a sermon the last two weeks, preached at both of our Water of Life campuses. His was on uh, dead to sin and mine was on buried uh, in 
uh, buried in the water of baptism. And I used one line in the sermon on, you know, you're dead to me. And if someone says you're dead to me, you know, that's in a, an, you're in an abusive and manipulative relationship. And that's the way sin is. Sin has said once we were baptized, you're dead to me. Why would we want to go back to that? We don't have to go back. We're dead to sin. We're alive in Christ. We now serve a new master, not as slaves that we have to, but as servants that want to. We are uh, willingly and gladly his sheep and then trusting him to be our overseer. Uh, Chapter three is, uh, we're going to rush through this so fast and it's really disappointing because this is, this is, like I said, this book is one of my favorite in the New Testament, and this chapter is one of my favorite in in the whole book. Um, so uh, we can we, take some time. We won't this. be doing it justice. Just, but just turn the turn the speed up a little bit. I, yeah, I will. I will. Not talk you. I mean, when you're listening. Oh yeah, you can do that. Can't you? Can adjust the speed. Um, no, the first verses of chapter three uh, are very. Um, politically incorrect and unpopular in these day in this day and age but you know what they always have been uh, i think people think that uh, the the feminist movement in america is something new and and different uh, but honestly uh, there've been things going on like this throughout throughout world history even um and uh, and so there's nothing new under the sun but uh, peter peter does begin by saying uh, that wives submit to their husbands or let wives submit to their husbands. And um, he ends up giving a lot of advice to the women in these uh, first six verses. And yet at the same time, I think as you read them or hear them, uh, maybe it's important to remember that uh, we know Peter was actually married. And uh, so he's writing these things as as a husband who is, who is in a marriage relationship and uh, so he, he does know what he's talking about. He's not just a bachelor telling women what to do. Um, uh, he says, don't, don't let your beauty come from your outward appearance. He doesn't condemn outward good looks. He just says, don't let that be the defining characteristic for you. And I remember preaching a long time ago on this text. I had written the sermon that I was asked by a former confirmand in Kentucky to preach for her wedding. So I wrote the sermon on being submissive. She heard what it was about and uh, asked me, but not really nicely, to rewrite the sermon. This had been on Friday night, her getting married on Saturday. Mm. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, And the thing is, if I would have had time and not in a high-stress situation like any bride has on the night before her wedding, I would have explained that being submissive is not an inferior role. Peter talks about that in chapter 5, verse 5, when he says that young men are to be submissive to older men. He's not saying they're inferior, but you willingly put yourself under the other person and trust them, like he says earlier, slaves, trusting their master for us as Christians, trusting the government as you who are listening, you trust your pastor. Uh, That's the idea that we are to uh, to submit to, uh, and the the picture and model of submission is Jesus Christ Himself. And he goes on to make that uh, point clear in verse seven when he tells the husbands, uh, in the same way, continue to live with your wives, uh, and uh, continue to accord them honor. 
you honor your wives. You you don't uh, disrespect them or or make them feel ashamed or or uh, inferior. Um, there's there there's a difference between being an authority figure and making somebody feel ashamed or inferior. Um, and that's not the second thing that I said. There is not the right relationship of a husband toward a wife. Um, they are both their fellow heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. That there's a lot of equality talk here, for as much as there's also uh, a hierarchical talk. Um, uh, Peter has some general exhortations with verses eight through twelve, and uh, in verses uh, thirteen through sixteen, um, there are uh, well. I think these verses would mean a lot to you. Did I, first of all, I kind of brushed right past 8 through 12. Did you have anything you wanted to say on those verses? No, I, I think a lot of that uh, is very similar to what James says, and we, we spend some time on that. God, using God's Word as a guide for your daily living. Um, it, I, I thought you would especially like talking about verse 15, because that is the word that Peter uses for that we today call apologetics. Uh, that he says, always be prepared to give an answer, uh, have uh, have a defense, like a defense lawyer goes into the courtroom, not just saying, well, I'll kind of wing it and, you know, say whatever pops into my head. No, he says, I'm going to have a strategy of how I'm going to defend my client. And that's the way that Peter says we should go about our evangelism work. Uh, have some kind of a strategy. Uh, think about the person, especially think about the person that you're talking to and what would be the most meaningful uh, you know, what would be offensive or make them shut their ears or what would be uh, especially pointed and uh, uh, relatable to the audience that you have when you talk about your faith. And one of the discussions I've had recently with a number of parents who get and teachers who get frustrated with their uh, students and children challenging them, and especially about Christianity, is I said, that's okay. Uh for, for a parent and as a pastor, I am less concerned about my daughters or others that have questions, have concerns, want to challenge things about the Christian faith because they're going to be challenged far harder in an unsafe environment in the workplace or in college. So better to have them challenge in a good way. You know, they want to learn more so that they are prepared when they go out into the, into the real world. But then we teach them, and like we teach ourselves, when we do challenge other people, and that's one of the things I teach people too, is don't just let others challenge you. You go on the offensive. Don't be put on the defensive where you're trying to defend God. You unleash the Holy Spirit, and you do that by going on the offensive. You're prepared, but you do it with gentleness and respect, not trying to win the war. I, mm -hmm. I got you, but you're trying to win the soul for Christ. Yeah, a, a good example would be with uh, evolution. I can just think of a conversation I've had where uh, people who think that uh, you can be a Christian and also believe in evolution, and it like a good way to do that would be to point out what did Christ come to do? He came to destroy death. Well, according to the theory of evolution, death is a necessary tool to. Uh, continue the improvement of different species. So Jesus, in other words, came to destroy the thing that improves different species. And uh, I 
just that's kind of <laughs> challenging somebody to say y- you can't really believe both in right. Christ and in evolution. Um, the last uh, verses of the chapter, uh, and these are now we're really rushing. And again, these are my favorite thing of the whole <laughs> chapter. Um, it talks about Christ suffering and descending into hell. Um, this is this is one of the best places in the whole Bible that teaches the descent into hell, uh, that it is not something where Jesus went to suffer more. It is not something uh, where Jesus uh, went to release souls from hell. Uh, it was a victory march after he came alive in the grave. Uh, by the way, I heard listen to a special episode that uh, Pastor Hagen did on this that was really neat about the descent of Christ into hell. And maybe I, I'll just reference that and say whatever he said in that was <laughs> the, be- the, the best way to explain this verse. Um, but there is this uh, balance between the flesh and the spirit uh, that that you find in other pl- places in the Bible, uh, when Jesus was in the flesh, that was his time of humiliation, and the spirit was his time of exaltation. Uh, and then you've got discussion of Noah and the flood, which tells us that baptism saved you. And that, I'll, you know what, I'll just make that be the ending for me. You can't unwrite what the Holy Spirit wrote here. Baptism okay. saved you. Well, I'm not going to let end there because I got a question for you yet. I don't want to okay. try and stump you. But yeah, the descent into hell, and it's interesting, God's timing, that yesterday visiting one of my 19 shut-ins I visited in the last three days, one of them asked, how come the descent into hell isn't mentioned in the Nicene Creed? And, uh, well, basically I just said that because the Nicene Creed was written to defend certain doctrines of the Christian church that were being challenged, and that dis- and that uh, doctrine was not being challenged at the time, so it's not in the Nicene Creed. And the way I teach the, the descent into hell, as you said, it's a victory, and I always explain how the devil and the demons imagine them in their prison cell of hell, but they're they're cheering and they're excited. They're having a party for three days because they uh, effectively killed the son of God. And then there's a knock on the door. One of the demons opens a little keyhole and looks out and goes, uh-oh. <laughs> and then the door blasts inward and Jesus is there in all of his glory and the music screeches to a halt and everyone's going, oh no. And then he preaches to them his victory. Uh, And then, yeah, he does talk about baptism and he compares baptism to the flood. So for those of you who are listening, I want you to think of what your baptismal font looks like. And if you don't remember, go and look at it closely on Sunday. Uh, Pastor Lighton, in, in your new church, you've only been here less than a year, is, uh, do you know how many sides our baptismal font has? Uh, I'm going to guess eight. Eight. Do you know why a baptismal font has eight sides? Because there were eight people saved in the ark, All right. as these verses tell us. Yep. And uh, that, cor- that water of the flood corresponds to baptism's water, uh, as Peter also tells us. And so that, that is why baptism saves you, saves you uh, just as the people were saved in that water of the flood, eight and all. Yeah. And there's a couple other explanations for the eight sides. One is that at creation, that God had the six days and on the seventh day he rested. So the eighth day is a new creation. And so just like we are new creations in baptism, uh, a similar one is that uh, Jesus died on Friday, the sixth day of the Jewish week. 
He slept in the grave on the Sabbath, the seventh day, and then he rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And so you add it up, seven days of Holy Week plus one Easter Sunday equals eight, the eighth day. And but all of these, I'm sure they kind of made it up to fit with the eight sides of of the baptismal font. But that imagery, when you see the eight-sided font, know that those who created the font didn't just make it that way because, uh, you know, four would have been easier. Six is a little more difficult. Eight's easier uh, than six or seven or whatever. But there is symbolism in an eight-sided arc, and it is that new creation, that new life. And we are at an hour mark of talking now, so I I really shouldn't do this, but I I did just want to add the descent the descent into hell. Um, w- one of the thoughts that has been most meaningful for me, and even kind of emotionally moving when I think about it, is uh, the fact that when our human race first fell into sin and became condemned and weak uh, and flesh. <sighs> what was the first thing that God did? Well, he confronted us. He confronted our parents with, with their sin. He went to Adam and Eve and they all passed the blame onto each other. Uh, but then God confronted the, the snake and told the devil, uh, I'm going to crush your head. And then what was the first thing that Jesus did once he had finished that crushing? He went into hell and said, I crushed your head. <laughs> And, and that, is, that is a neat thought to think about when you felt the effects of uh, Satan ravaging your life. Uh, just to say, Satan, remember that sermon that you had to listen to when Jesus descended into hell. All right. And next week, we'll spend more time with a former fisherman turned disciple than called to be an apostle. We'll finish up First and Second Peter. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Lightning Bolt. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.